My name is Will Green, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. Specifically, this is a project of SURGE faith and SURGE action. This is the podcast where the weekly scripture readings are brought into dialogue with the racist reality we're living in today. In a time when the news is dominated by racism, inequality, climate crisis, the prison industrial complex, Islamophobia, xenophobia, sexism, LGBTQ oppression, and so much violence, what does it mean to believe in the good news? What does the Bible and the faith of those who read it have to do with the world we're living in and the world we want to live in? If these are questions you're asking all the time, then this podcast is designed to be a resource for reflection, inspiration, and action. Because this podcast is created by Surge, we're primarily addressing white people in the United States. We're white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to dismantle white supremacy, following the leadership of people of color. We welcome all listeners and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to people of color. I myself am a white, cisgender, gay clergy person who lives on Wabanaki land in the state of Maine. I'm a Methodist pastor who serves a congregation. If you've heard my contributions to the word is resistance before, you may realize that I've recently moved. This is my first episode back since relocating. It's really good to be back with you. So, I'm a big fan of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Lately, Mr. Rogers seems to be more popular than ever. Do you remember those segments on the show where he would take a little field trip around the neighborhood to workplaces or job sites or culturally significant locations to see what goes on there? Do you remember that? He'd describe where we were going, and then he'd look toward the camera and extend his hand and say, let's go together and take a look. Come on. In the lectionary this week, we have something like one of those little field trips. In my imagination, the 18th chapter of Jeremiah is a lot like one of those segments. It's like we take a little field trip to a pottery workshop. I think this passage from Jeremiah is a well-known passage, and you might remember it. I'm imagining that it begins with the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, looking right into the camera, extending his hand and saying, let's go down to the potter's house. Come on, let's go now. And with the first verse of this chapter, I can almost hear the jazzy piano music from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You know, those little riffs. And I can almost see the camera panning across the toy model set, starting at Mr. Rogers' mustard-colored house, and then zooming in on and settling on a pottery studio. I'm going to read the passage. As I do, feel free to picture some imagery from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Here's Jeremiah, chapter 18, Verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, 
working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter, shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now! all of you, from your evil way, and amend your ways and your doings. And that's the reading from Jeremiah chapter 18. Okay, obviously, this is not the standard message of affirmation that Fred Rogers was known for. But there's a reason I bring up this whole field trip thing. The reason is that Mr. Rogers' field trips uh, would teach us where things are made and how things are made, especially when he'd visit, you know, a factory or a warehouse or a pottery studio, as the case may be. We'd get to better understand the story behind something, uh, behind something that's so normal that we, we've never taken the time to stop and wonder about where it comes from. No matter what the object in question was, whether pretzels or crayons or anything, I always found it fascinating to get, to get the backstory, the inside scoop on things that we see all the time and have come to be very comfortable with, but have never really taken the time to stop and understand just where they come from. In the industrial world, we're alienated from a lot of the things around us. We don't know where even the most common things come from or how they get made. I don't think this was true for people so much in Jeremiah's world as it is for you and me. So consider this. Instead of thinking about a physical object... Sometimes we want to know where an idea comes from. Uh, we do something like that on this podcast when we ask ourselves, where does racism come from? Well, what's the story behind racism's proliferation? How does white supremacy get constructed? What's it made out of? How and where is it put together? These are important questions. You know, sometimes it's good to ask ourselves, wait a minute, you know, where does... Where does racism come from? What enforces it? What upholds it? Who's invested in allowing it to operate? It's worth it to be troubled by such questions. It's good that some people are apparently waking up to injustice and inequity. It's good that white people are getting disturbed and uncomfortable with so many of the institutions and oppressive systems around us. As a Christian... I would say that it's good that we feel extremely uncomfortable with the tension between the daily news and the good news. I'm talking about the daily news of uh, oppression, injustice, and evil, and the good news of liberation, collective well-being, and transformative hope. So last month, 
Right there in mainstream culture, the New York Times published something called the 1619 Project. Thinking about this whole Mr. Rogers field trip that gives us the backstory makes me think of the 1619 Project. I'm assuming you've heard of the 1619 Project, but maybe you haven't. It's a New York Times project edited by the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. The 1619 Project is a re-examination of slavery in the United States of America. It's a compilation of many articles and essays covering a variety of topics that relate to the legacy of the enslavement of Africans by ethnic Anglo-Europeans in the United States. That's what the 1619 Project is all about. I think the 1619 Project is like one of these Mr. Rogers field trips, where we can ask, where does racism come from? How is it made? Where can we go to find out more about it? What's the backstory that we've never been told? How can we learn to better understand the legacy and the history about the reality of racism? So it's called the 1619 Project because August 20th, 1619, 400 years ago, is the day we remember when enslaved Africans were first trafficked to the shores of what would become the United States of America by white people. The 1619 Project suggests that this date, August 20th, 1619, should supplant in our minds July 4th, 1776, as the date from which this country and this culture derives. Think about that. The values of this country are not best embodied by what happened, or we say what happened, on the 4th of July, 1776, but rather by the events of August 20th, 1619. Here's a quote from the, uh, an introductory piece to the print edition of the 1619 Project. These are the words of uh, Jake Silverstein, and they framed the New York Times Magazine edition of uh, the 1619 Project. It came out on Sunday, August 18th, 2019. Here's the quote. Quote, Out of slavery and the anti-black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made American exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, diet, and popular music, the inequities of its public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, and hatreds that continue to plague us to this day. End quote. As white people, we are alienated from this story. There are so many forces, so many lies that are deployed to keep us from knowing and internalizing the truth about racism. Imagine, like uh, uh, Mr. Rogers' field trip, or like the 18th chapter of the prophet Jeremiah, what it would be like to go to the source and understand the backstory, get the inside scoop on the legacy of slavery and the anti-black racism it requires on our lives. And that's just what I think the 1619 Project is all about. I commend it to you. In the Jeremiah 18 passage, the prophet goes on a field trip, and what he sees helps him become aware of what is going on in the culture around him. It helps him to see that the culture around him is evil and doomed. I feel that way 
when reading the 1619 Project, understanding and re-examining the heritage of August 20th, 1619, puts us in touch with the long-standing evil that's all around us, and with a future that is destined for destruction. But despite this, one of the amazing and unexpected gifts of the 1619 Project is the suggestion that things don't have to be this way. Things can change. Of course, uh, the same thing is true in the Jeremiah reading. There's evil and there's doom, but things can change. People can amend their ways. Even God's own mind about the future can be changed. Like clay on the potter's wheel, the community's collective future can be reshaped into something new. How could things change for us? Well, I would say, in a word, that things can change through anti-racism. Just as surely as racism is evil and takes us on a path to doom and destruction, anti-racism can challenge racism. Through anti-racism, we can change from people who are shaped by racism to people who are committed to challenging racism. It's not just that things can change in the abstract, it's that we can change. So the last, uh, recently I've been reading a book that just came out, uh, maybe you've heard of it too, I bet you have, it's called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, just came out this summer. Uh, I want to read to you some of Ibram Kendi's words from a chapter of that book titled Definitions. And this is about uh, how we can change through anti-racism. Hear this quote, this is Kendi. Kendi writes, quote, We are surrounded by racial inequity as visible as the law, as hidden as our private thoughts. The question for each of us is, what side of history will we stand on? A racist is someone who is supporting a racist policy by their actions or inaction, or expressing a racist idea. An anti-racist is someone who is supporting an anti-racist policy by their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. Racist and anti-racist are like peelable name tags that are placed and replaced based on what someone is doing or not doing, supporting or expressing in each moment. These are not permanent tattoos. No one becomes a racist or an anti-racist. Like fighting an addiction, being an anti-racist requires persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. That's the end of the quote from Ibram Kendi. It's from pages 22 to 23 of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Okay, this idea of racist and anti-racist as peelable name tags that can be placed and replaced reminds me of the malleable nature of the clay on the potter's wheel in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, with its talk of evil and doom that can be changed into a different shape, invites us into this sort of, to use Ibram Kendi's words, persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. And that, uh, Ibram Kendi suggests, are the, de the defining qualities that lead to anti-racist actions or policies. Persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. The rhetoric of Jeremiah 18 encourages a posture of change as well. 
You know, in that passage, Jeremiah goes to the potter's house, learns from what he sees there, and then comes to believe that radical, reshaped change is an alternative. Anti-racist practices are just such a constant invitation to radical, reshaped change. We can live the consequences of racism, or we can challenge racism through anti-racist practices. Reading the 1619 Project, we can also, also ask ourselves, can we change? Can we reject the American racist ideology? And the, the first essay in the magazine edition of the project says, yes, it is possible to be something different, even for the United States of America. The first essay in the collection is by Nicole Hannah-Jones, and the title of her essay is also the thesis statement of the essay. It answers the question, how we can change. This is it. This is the title of the first essay. Uh, quote, uh, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. And that's how she thinks the American racist ideology can be rejected and overcome, namely by following the lead of black people, of black Americans specifically. To summarize, in this essay, she writes about how in the period of Reconstruction right after the Civil War, formerly enslaved people did not decide to leave the country or to seek vengeance on their enslavers. Instead, they organized and they claimed the levers of power in society through democracy. She writes, this is uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, quote, the South, this is, this is uh, during the period of Reconstruction, she writes, quote, the South, for the first time in the history of this country, began to resemble a democracy with black Americans elected to local, state, and federal offices, led by black activists and a Republican party pushed left by the blatant recalcitrance of white Southerners the years directly after slavery saw the greatest expansion of human and civil rights this nation would ever see. That's the end of the quote. She says that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are all a testament to this. Tragically, these gains were then violently reversed after they started to go into effect for a solid century. In her analysis, the threat to America's founding ideology was not slavery, but democracy as practiced during Reconstruction. She writes, quote, If the formerly enslaved and their descendants became educated, if we, she's writing as a black person, if we thrived in the jobs white people did, if we excelled in the sciences and arts, then the entire justification for how this nation allowed slavery would collapse. End quote. In other words, the aberration in American history was not slavery. The aberration was democracy, as it was actually attempted for a very brief window in time by blacks following the Civil War uh, during Reconstruction. She suggests that continuing this project of democracy and continuing to follow the leadership of black people toward freedom can allow democratic values to become a reality in the present and into the future. She sees black Americans as fighting to make the ideals of democracy true. That's the story she tells. 
Black Americans have always been the ones to make the ideals of democracy true. It's a fight. A fight that's been going on much longer than, than some people realize. The 1619 Project documents this story uh, across many aspects of our society. I see this as an anti-racist project. To invoke the imagery of Jeremiah 18, I think it is an illustration of how we can avoid our collective cultural destruction. Change that can save us is possible. It requires honestly acknowledging how this country has been made. And it requires an ongoing commitment to use this knowledge to change the ways that we have lived. I think of Nicole Hannah-Jones as taking us on a field trip, if you will, to the Potter's House, where all people can see how this country is really made. When we go on this field trip, we can make our own assessments about how we think things are going to go. How is this country and our collective identity fashioned? Can it be remade? When we return from this field trip, we're left with just this question. Uh, what are we going to do about it now that we know what we know? to take one more twist in this episode and introduce one more topic. Uh, lest we think that slavery and oppression are unique problems of the United States of America in 1619, amazingly, the lectionary this week also includes a reading from Paul's letter to, to Philemon. Excuse me. <laughs> Paul's letter to Philemon. Do you know about Paul's letter to Philemon? Many Christians don't. Paul's letter to Philemon is about an enslaved person named Onesimus. It's a, Onesimus is a Greek word meaning useful. Onesimus, an enslaved, an enslaved person, has somehow been in servitude to Paul. In this letter, Paul sends Onesimus back to a person named Philemon, who it seems uh, once or currently uh, was Onesimus's so-called master. Paul sends this enslaved person, Onesimus, back to Philemon. Now, let me read this passage from the lectionary for you. A few verses from Paul's letter to uh, Philemon. I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, 
no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Okay, that's the reading from Paul's uh, letter to Philemon. It is uh, a convoluted passage, and although it's not terribly easy to follow, this passage horrifies me, because it's possible to read this letter as if Paul is forcing someone back into slavery. It's possible to read this and understand that Onesimus had run away from Philemon, his so-called master, and he ended up with Paul, and Paul in this piece of scripture, plays the role of a slave catcher who forces Onesimus back into enslavement. We don't know the whole story or have the details, of course, but that's one very possible reading. I'm bringing this passage from the lectionary into the conversation because I feel like enslaved people from the past deserve to be remembered. It's horrible and difficult, and we should remember. We know Onesimus' name, but countless other enslaved people did not have their names recorded or their memories honored. We are completely surrounded by legacies of oppression and slavery. In our national story in the United States of America, and in our scripture in the Holy Bible, these legacies feed both the racism and other oppressive systems that make the world around us. We need to learn these stories. We need to understand where these stories come from, how they have been built, so that we can change and reject them. Again, going back to this field trip uh, metaphor that I keep returning to getting the backstory so that we can really see these things that are all around us and so common. How deep do they go? Where do they come from? How are they constructed? The history of the United States of America and the history of Christianity are both filled with horrors like this. And it's not just in the past. These are the times in which we're living today. On this podcast, we remind ourselves that this is not how things have to be. We can learn the stories so we can reject the stories. We can create new stories. In the name of Onesimus, and in the spirit of so many others whose names have not been preserved, I invite you to learn about and reject the violent legacies that maintain white supremacy. We can build up a new world. closing, I want to commend to you the resources I've been drawing from today. The 1619 Project, uh, which you can find 
uh, on the New York Times website, and the book How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, These are not just articles and a book. These are invitations to ongoing practices that can help us change. Thank you for listening. Uh, You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud, and you can also find us on Stitcher. Just search The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available on our website. The music you hear in our podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Reverend Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group singing is called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for choir practice to bring music back into direct action and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're particularly grateful and thankful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound engineer is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max, for making this podcast possible. Peace and power to you all in our work together. I'm grateful to be in this movement with you. (laughs) 